Glad to see you, and um, if we have not met, uh, my name is Brian Habig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Jake Patton leading us in worship, and we're glad you're here. Thank you for being here on a Sunday morning. We're going to look at at the beginning of what, well, it's what we call the Lord's Prayer that might be a bit of a misnomer. This is a prayer that the Lord taught to His disciples, so it could it could have been called the Disciples' Prayer, and there's other prayers in the New Testament that could have been called the Lord's Prayer, but we'll go with that. And, and on the bulletin, I say that we're just looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We have more verses than that, just I want you to hear the context before He says the Lord's Prayer, what, what led up to it. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, going to look at a few other verses, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. Uh, I, I, I have not read widely in the field of productivity or workflow or that kind of thing, but, you know, just as you get older and you do more work, you hear more about that. You see th- things online about me being more productive and time management and that kind of thing, and it seems like I see more and more, or maybe I'm just old enough to notice it now, about what to do when you're stuck and, and you can't start doing something. It might be a new endeavor. It could be something outside of work life that you really want to start just for your own interest. And that, that the hardest part, it seems like the consensus from people that really know about this stuff, the hardest part is just taking the first action step. The hardest part of overcoming inertia is just to start. But that's the thing you must do. You must take a first step. And I was thinking about how relevant that is for praying. And uh, again, if if you've never been here before, I never assume that you're already a praying person, that you're already a believing person. But it may be that, that right now you're just starting to become someone who prays. And if so, that's very exciting. I mean, that's, that's, that's very exciting. But you may feel overwhelmed by inexperience. You may feel like when I hear like a pastor pray, or I know friends that when they pray, they know what to say. They know these good phrases, and they, they know how to quote the Bible in their prayers. And I don't know how to do that. And it sort of makes you feel shut down before you start, just the inexperience. It makes it feel daunting. That's a big one. I think a really big one in this room that hits a lot of us is perfectionism. And what I think that would look like in, in prayer is, wow, this is important. We're talking to God. It needs to be good. I don't need to be flippant. And so I better really think through this and kind of feeling like, you know what, I need to read like three books about prayer and the Psalms, and then I'll pray. And then, of course, that just shuts you down. You know, I've got to get it just right, and I've got to understand it before I start, and then so we don't start. Perfectionism. Another big one, I would say, is just feeling so overwhelmed about what to pray about. There are all these things that we need to pray about for ourselves, spiritually, physically, financially, whatever. There are all these things that we need to pray for for the people that we love, that we, that we work with, that we live around. There are all these things that we need to pray for about the United States, we should go to bat for the United States, but we should go to bat for the world. There's all these things around the world. I was saying at the 8.30 service, I, I sure hope they're not extraterrestrials because then that's going to be another batch of prayer requests. That's, an, that's another threshold. So much to pray about, even if it were just me, but there's so much more than me and feeling like I don't, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed, I can't start. And it really is the love of God. 
and the love of Jesus Christ, not only to come to, to followers of Jesus in, in his ministry. And this, by the way, should have said this at the beginning. This is from Matthew 6, and it's sandwiched in these, in these three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's sort of going public as the teaching Messiah. And so in the sermon, you've got him teaching people, his followers, how to pray. And not only is it so loving of God to give him to us, period, and, and loving of Jesus to teach us, but like he's even teaching us how to start. Because sometimes that's the hardest part. And so I hope this will sound like good news to you this morning. If, if you struggle to pray, if even right now as I'm talking about this, you think, I really, except maybe for a meal, I really haven't prayed in a long time. He, listen to how Jesus says to overcome the inertia and to start. And we'll begin a few verses back in Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will, that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this, and we thank you for all of your Word, all the parables and laws and letters and genealogies and everything. But but thank you for the very words of Jesus teaching us how to pray, even how to start praying. And we pray this will be good news to us. We pray it will be sweet like honey, like honey from the comb. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I, I probably should say this more often than I do, but I'll, I'll take this opportunity to say this. Just about everything that I presently know about adoption or orphan care, or anything related to that, is because of you. And it's been this, this interesting thing in the life of downtown Prez that, and this has zero fingerprints of mine on it, is that God has just more and more fostered a culture of adoption and orphan care. Doesn't mean everybody has, but more learning about it, how they can support, help, participate, and some actually adopting children into their family. And one particular thing that, that I, I just didn't know about because of my own inexperience and the, the, the friendships I had, I didn't know about this, is just that there's a real variety of experience of the child who is adopted into a family. There, there's just not a one-size-fits-all story. There's, there's a real range to it. Sometimes a child is adopted and enters a family, and, and that child deeply feels right from the outset that a lot of this is new to me, but I, this is my family. Um, this is my parent. These are my parents. These, or maybe these are my siblings. This is 
my house. They, they, they don't just know that that's factually true, but they, they feel it. They experience it. But in that spectrum, there, there's some that, that really struggle with that. And sometimes the struggle's overcome. Sometimes the struggle continues. There's just a real range of human experience about that. And that is a real analogy about our experience with God if we believe in Him. And here's what I mean by that. And I'm going to touch on this again, but let me, let me throw out a, a theological foundation here. It's pretty commonplace for people to speak in terms of, you know, everyone is a child of God. We are all children of God. And, and this, this can be jarring to hear it on the front end, but biblically, that doesn't hold water. And let me explain what I mean by that. All human beings bear the image of God, whether they believe in Him or not, whatever their culture, all human beings bear the image of God, made in the image of God. Every human being is the pinnacle of creation. Bigger than the constellations, bigger than the mountains. Human beings are amazing. Uh, All human beings are our neighbors. All human beings are important. All human beings have value. All that holds. But what's also a big deal in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, is to be a child of God means God has to adopt you in. You don't adopt people who are already children, your own children. You adopt those who are not your children. Again, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But when God shows his mercy to a person and saves that person, when he brings a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to himself, he doesn't just forgive their sins, although he does that. But he adopts that person to be his own child, and God means it. He means, I am really your father now, and you really are my son or daughter now. now. And I'm not playing. You really are in my family. Now, here's the thing. That, if God does it, is factually true, whether you feel it or not. But redemption is not just for God to change our legal status, although he does that. And when I say legal, I don't mean our courtrooms. I mean his courtroom as great judge, capital J. He does change our legal status. He does make us his child, but redemption is he wants us to experience that. And dare I say it, as a Presbyterian, he wants us to feel that. To feel it on our insides that he really is my father. And I really am his child. I really am. And and sometimes God brings a person to himself and they feel that acutely right from the get-go. Some people, when God brings them to himself, they feel like he loves me and he's for me and he's in my corner and like they kind of hold their head higher than they ever have. Like, and no one better mess with me because he's awesome. And that's beautiful. But for some of us, attachment is a real process. And so it is amazing that when Jesus, he's teaching his, his first disciples how to pray, that he doesn't start off and say, ask for this, ask, ask for that. The first thing he teaches you to do is not to ask for anything. The way to start praying as a follower of Jesus is to call God your father. That's how he wants us to start praying. So 
I want to take this, just this little phrase at the beginning, in the order in the original. Now, here's, you know, it's great to be in a church where there's a lot of smart people because sometimes they'll catch you. And, uh, and I had that happen a while back. One of our, somebody in the congregation that knows their Greek better than I do caught me. I said, you know, isn't it amazing that the first word that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer is our? And he came up to me afterward and said, yeah, in English it's that, but uh, in the original it's Father. And I went, ah, got me. You know, Newman. And, um, but that's true. And, and in Aramaic, the way Jesus would have said it, Father would have been first. So, and by the way, that's a good thing. When, when the Apostle Paul went into one of the cities in Acts, it said he preached. It was in the city of Berea. And then when he got through preaching, they all checked him out to like make sure he was telling the truth. So that was a good thing that guy did. Here, here's the order I want to take it. Father, our in heaven. Okay? Father, and our and in heaven. So first, just Father. Sometimes, and I probably have been guilty of this myself, Sometimes Christians have said about this prayer that really up till now, the people of God had not prayed and called God Father, as if like they didn't know to do that. And that's not true. And the reason that's not true is that God identifying himself as his people's father, that didn't start in the New Testament. That started with the law and the prophets. And I want to read you just a couple of scriptures. That, and, you know, a devout Jew would have heard these scriptures, grown up with these scriptures. I'm just going to read two. Now, one's not in the bulletin, but one is. Um, the first one that's not in the bulletin, this is from Exodus. And this is really important because the big, big salvation story prior to Jesus coming is the Exodus. You know, and the Passover, and the, and, the, and the leaving Egypt, the rescue from slavery. That's the big salvation redemption story. Listen to what God said when he selected Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Listen to what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh. This is from Exodus 4. He says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Isn't that interesting? That the first thing that he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh is not let the Israelites go or let my people go. It's let my son go. Let my son come worship me. And he means the Israelites. That would have been very familiar to the Jewish people. Let me read one more. This is from the prophets. This is from Isaiah. It's in your bulletin. Isaiah 63, speaking to God, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. So it's just, there's a lot of other scriptures I could read, but just suffice it to say, this was not new information that started in the New Testament, all right? Did that get into the Jewish way of prayer? Now, I don't know if this will interest you or not, but a lot of New Testament scholars have picked up on the fact that there was an an old Jewish prayer still used that's very similar to the Lord's Prayer. And it seems like Jesus, if he didn't know the present version of it, he knew an older version of it, and that he he, he adapted it. It's called the Kaddish and listen to the language of this prayer. See if you can pick up how similar this is to what we call the Lord's Prayer. Magnified 
and hallowed be his great name in the world he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom during your life and during your days and during the life of all the house of Israel speedily and in the near future and say amen. All kinds of words overlap with the Lord's Prayer, but what word is not there? Father. And you can find Jewish prayers, ancient and current, where God is called Father, but it's much more rare. Now, why is that? And as you're listening to this, you might be kind of like tensing up a little bit, like I'm about to say something anti-Semitic. And the thing is, to the contrary, this is a human thing. And brilliant Jesus put it this way, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's on your insides, really, just look at what you say. What do you like to talk about? If your talk is work, 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 that's what really fills the heart. The fact that God was his people's father was, was known. Was it coming out in the prayers that became the go-to prayers of the Jewish people? That language of calling him father? No. Why not? That information was not sinking in at a heart level. And guess what? That was true then. It's true now. And I would say this for all of us, just as a diagnostic. This would not be my only, like, spiritual diagnostic, but this would be a diagnostic. If you are a person who prays, and if you have someone in your life who hears you pray, ask, I mean, you could do this today. Ask that person, when you hear me pray, what do I call God? And there's a variety in the Scriptures as to what God is called. There's a variety in Psalms, you know, about how God is addressed could be God, could be Lord, could be King, could be Savior. There's always metaphors, strong tower, refuge. All those are great, and all those should be used. But you should ask someone, if you pray, and this person hears you pray, do you ever hear me call him Father? And the question is not meant to make you panic, but it's to say, that could be a diagnostic about, do I know kind of like at a data level, factually, that God reveals himself as his people's father. But has it really gotten in there? Because he wants us to experience it. And again, Jesus embeds that as the beginning of prayer. The way to start is not to ask for anything or to promise to do something. The way to start is to call God Father. And he's our father. Um, What's important about that? And a couple of things. One is this, and this may sound like stating the obvious, it's plural. And why why should that surprise us? Look look back at the passage before the prayer and look in verse 6. Now here's here's the trick. In English, we use the same word for you, like just one of you, and plural you. Of course, Southerners have taken care of this with y'all. That's you, plural. But just generally in English, you, singular, and you, plural, same word. Not in almost all other languages. And in the way this is written in New Testament Greek, verse 6 is singular. It's talking about one, one of you. So Jesus says, singular, but when you pray, you know, this, this one woman 
goes to pray. This, this boy goes to pray. Go into your singular room, shut the door, pray to your singular father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so he just got through saying that. So let's say one of his disciples says, all right, I'm going to do that. And they go by himself, by herself, into this closet, close the door, pray in secret. And then here's what he or she is to say, our father. Who, who, it's tortured grammar. Who is we? Who, are, who is the our? It's the people of God. It's what the Apostles' Creed calls the Holy Catholic Church. All the brothers and sisters, all the adopted brothers and sisters of God. And this is amazing. Jesus is saying in the just most lean and mean, succinct way, when you pray, you begin by acknowledging that by His mercy, you have a Father and you have a family. No matter what the condition of your family of origin is on this earth, you have a Father and you have a family. You are part of this great story that didn't just start with the New Testament. The story of the people of God goes all the way back to Genesis. Our Father. The other thing is this, is that it's unnatural. And I've already, I've already alluded to this, but I, I want to say something else about it. Classic passage about this in, in one of Paul's letters letter to the Ephesians. He's writing them as Christians, and he says this, you were once children of wrath. You were, in fact, he says, you were by nature children of wrath. What is he saying? He's saying that you slash we showed up in this world, and unless God had intervened, we would just stand before God deserving what we deserve. Well, what do we deserve? Well, Here's what we need to know about ourselves. We show up bearing Adam's guilt. We bear our forefather's guilt. He acted on his own behalf, and he acted on our behalf. We don't show up neutral, and we don't show up blank slates. We already show up behind the eight ball. But then, on top of that, we pile all our ways that we don't love God and don't love people, and we serve ourselves, and we're bent in on ourselves. We sin, and we break God's commandments. And God must be just. It would be just and fair for him to pour out his perfect holy justice on us. That would be fair if he did that. It's richly deserved. And Paul says to these people who, you know, they grew up pagan unless they came out of the synagogue. That by his mercy, he made people who were children of wrath his children. And it's so important to just, it, this prayer is so succinct. You've got to stop and ask yourself, what did it cost for that to happen? It's extremely expensive. I mean, that's been another thing. I knew this in, you know, I knew it in, in abstraction, but, but through knowing you and watching the expense, not just the financial expense of adopting, the emotional expense, waiting, Ups, downs, tears, uncertainty, confusion, setbacks, more financial expense. It's expensive to adopt. Think about it this way. 
Jesus said, pray and say our Father when you pray. Did he practice what he preached? Did Jesus practice what he preached when he prayed? Well, did he say our Father when he prayed? And if you look at his prayers, he either says Father or he says my Father. Or he talks about my Father. He's the only natural child of God. He's the only one who naturally is his father's son. Doesn't have to be adopted. But there's one prayer actually at the end of Matthew where he doesn't call God Father. It's the only time he does that. It's when he's on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's how one person put it. When you hear him praying that way, he's always said Father. Always. And teaches, pray this, pray Father. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's what you're hearing. The Son of God has become a child of wrath. Why? So that children of wrath can become sons and daughters of God. That's what happened on the cross. It couldn't be more expensive. Like God wants to adopt sinners. It's like too good to be true. It, it's unnatural, but he wants it. He, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. And he wants us to not just be, but experience that we're his children. And the Lord Jesus, the, the Son of God, embeds that at the beginning of here's how you pray. He's our Father. And let me say this too. Um, well, let, let me get to this next word because I think it, spe- it speaks to this. He's our Father in heaven. A lot of things here. The fact that our Father's in heaven. One is this. And I don't want to go any further without saying this. Heaven is the place where there is no sin. And I I don't have a lot of expertise in psychology, but there is such a thing as projection. You know what projection is? That's just the term for when you project onto someone or something else, you're experienced with a prior thing or a prior person. And a classic is that we project onto God, especially when we hear the father language, things about our own fathers. And guys, even as I say that, I'm not setting us up to throw all our dads under the bus. But in this room, there's, there's a range of experience, right? Some of you had loving, compassionate dads. And so it's just, it's, it hasn't been hard for you to connect the dots about how he made you feel, how he took care of you, to connect the dots to God and say, wow, if he's a bigger, more loving more powerful, more faithful version of that, that just washes all over me. And if that's been your experience, thank the Lord. That's a real gift. But a bunch of you, that's not. That what you got, what, you know, probably, here's the polls. Uh, Tyranny or just detachment, iciness, or passivity. Or cruelty, or selfishness, 
or unfaithfulness. He wasn't there when he was supposed to be there. Whatever version of it is. And look, we don't need to be too cocky about it. All parents are fallen, and all the kids are fallen. And if they become parents, they grow up to be fallen parents. So let's not be cocky about it. However, heaven is the place where there is no sin. Our Father is fathering in heaven. He is love. Did first century Jews know all that we know from the Scriptures about His love? No, but you know what? They would have grown up with the Psalms. And they would have sung things like, as a father has compassion on his children. Like a good one, a great one. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. And I I don't want to go any further without saying that. I, I don't know what your experience with your earthly dad was like. But either what you had is made more beautifully evident and more powerfully demonstrated, or what you didn't have and you longed for, that's the Father He is, beyond what we could ask or imagine. Second thing is this, is that when that really gets into your heart, it's transforming. Even if you had a Father that disappointed you profoundly. We're going to end the worship service this morning by singing, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. And the guy who wrote that hymn was named Henry Light, L-Y-T-E. He wrote Abide With Me. That's a very famous hymn, but he wrote this hymn. And a friend of mine shared this story with me. He knew the backstory about Henry Light. When he was young, his parents split up. And the dad sent young Henry to boarding school. And when he was away at boarding school, his dad remarried. And I don't know why this was. I don't know if he had a mental breakdown or what the deal was. But he, whenever he would write Henry from that point on, he referred to himself as your uncle. He wouldn't sign it, your father. And he would not allow Henry to call him father. It's like bizarre and super hurtful. But God worked in Henry Light's life. And, and it's amazing that you look up and as an adult, He's able to write a hymn where he says something like, talking about God, father-like. His dad had done something awful. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame, he knows. In his hands, he gently bears us. Do you think he felt that from his dad? In his hands, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. He's a protector. How did he have that? He had it from God showing him This is what kind of father I am. I can redeem your story. I am the father you need. Whatever your earthly father did or didn't do. This really can change you and me on the inside. But let me say this last about thinking about our father in heaven. A good friend of mine in college, uh, right before our last year of college, he, he spent a summer in Japan. He lived in Nagoya, Japan. He got to look around, you know, do, do the tourist thing a bit. And one, one of the things he knew he was going to get to do in Japan was his team of uh, friends were going to get to climb Mount Fuji. And I can't remember, I should have called him, whether this was my idea or his idea, but, but one of us came up with the idea, when you get up at the top of Mount Fuji, will you yell the word, hey, big, from the top? 
Just, I, just, I just want Fuji to have heard Hey Big one time because I, I don't know if I'll ever get over there. And, and so he did. He, he climbed it with his friends and he said, whenever they got to like the highest point, all these Japanese people around, he just went, Hey Big! And whenever I see a picture of it, it makes me happy, you know? It makes me happy to see Snowcap Mountain, perfect symmetry, and that like, you know, it heard my name up there. I like that. And as uh, incredibly inconsequential as that is to your life, and, uh, and, and really, and only mildly interesting even. To, to me, the, the specialness of it is, you know, like my, my word, you know, the word attached to me going there to that place that I may physically never get to. Jesus embeds at the beginning of this prayer, he's your father, he's our father, and here's the elder brother saying to all the adopted brothers and sisters, he's our father, and he's in heaven. He is not what all fallen fathers are like. But when you pray to him, your words are going to your father in heaven. And I know that for some of you, this is old info, but you know what? Even if you've been around it a long, in fact, maybe especially if you've been around it a long time, we know it, but we don't know it. I think if we really knew it, we'd pray a ton. And I'm saying we. When we pray these frail, not great, maybe crummy little prayers, or we just don't know what to pray, we use these lips where we've earlier that day barked at people or been severe or harsh or unloving, those lips, when we pray, our words actually go in to his throne room where he is. The book of Revelation actually shows that. It shows the throne room of God and the prayers of his his messed up people. The prayers come up with incense, and the incense seems to be the sweetening beautifying effect of Jesus. It comes up into his presence and in Revelation, when those prayers come up, he does things on earth. Earthquakes, lightning, thunder. He responds to our words. I I just, I want us to be encouraged. If you don't know how to start, say father to him. You're my father. You're our father. And you're in heaven. And you know what that means? You don't have to cover everything. It says in Ecclesiastes, he's in heaven, you're on earth, let your words be few. Jesus said the same thing. You don't have to say it all. He's God. You say what you need to say. But he's in heaven. Let me end with this. It, if you're here and you've never been able to call God Father because he's not been your father, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe that's already been, the urgency of that's already been pressing in your heart. Today would be a wonderful, no one can make you do it, but today would be a wonderful day for you to say to God, make me your child. I can't make me your child. Would you make me your child? Would you adopt me? Cleanse me? Do what you do for sinners? Would you give me Jesus so that I can, for the rest of my life, for the rest of eternity, say our Father, back to you. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father,
We pray that this would help us to be a praying people. For the person who's here, who's never called you father because you haven't been father, would you, would you change hearts right now? Holy Spirit, would you enable a person to cry out, make me your child. Forgive my sins. Bring me into your family. We pray, Father, that for those who, who do know you and have known you, but we have fallen into prayerlessness, or we neglect it, that you would change us, that your faithful fathering love would change us from the inside out, that we can cry out to you. And we don't have to start with a laundry list. We can just call you Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.